Hi, welcome to another session of the Potter's Roundtable from Washington Street Studios at the intersection of the Shenandoah and Potomac Rivers. I'm Phil Bernberg. Today we'll be discussing pottery figurine. By that I mean simple math calculations that are used in pottery. Welcome to the Potter's Roundtable, a monthly podcast where we share our passion for the ceramic arts and a collection of topics specific to potters. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Enjoy the show. Okay. Well, last time we talked about pottery and the science of physics and how the physics, in, you know, worked in, in for pottery. Today we're going to be discussing math, basically some simple calculations and rules that you can actually use for pottery. So one of the first things I wanted to, I wanted to bring up was the fact that to be aware of the fact that there are different units of measurement and that when you're doing calculations, you have to be consistent. And the two basic, the two systems that we, we basically run across are what we call the English system, which is what we are fairly commonly used here in the United States, and the metric system. So the English system for weights has pounds and ounces, and it for distance it has feet and inches, and for temperature it generally uses degrees Fahrenheit. Whereas for the metric system, we have kilograms, which is 1,000 grams and grams, and meters and centimeters for distance, and temperatures now are given in degrees centigrade. And there are some simple conversions between the two. And these are, these are some easy ones to remember or to use, is that one pound equals 453.6 grams. A kilogram is actually 1,000 actually grams. And then for feet and inches, one inch is 2.54, a little more than 2.5 centimeters. And then there are some formulas I've given down below here for, we won't go into it in detail, but some formulas to convert. There are plenty of places you, look, you can look this up, so most of the time you don't have to actually do the calculations. But if you wanted to convert from centigrade to Fahrenheit, you can use this formula. And if you wanted to convert from Fahrenheit to centigrade, you can use that formula. Okay? And the other thing I wanted to mention, turn this over, is... As, as by way of introduction, we need to keep in mind, and we're going to be using these, the idea of fractions and decimal fractions in percent. And these are just basically different ways of expressing the same thing. So if I have a fraction of one quarter, that is the same as the decimal fraction, 0.25. And basically, so if I, if I divide one by four, I get 0.25. And that's the same, it's equivalent to 25%. Because the, the places in this number, this is tenths and hundredths. So this basically is saying 25 one-hundredths. Well, that's the same as percent, 25 parts out of 100. So it's basically, even though it, it looks, you know, you're, you're eliminating the decimal point and adding the percent, it basically is saying the same thing. Now, in this, in this, for these some of these math things we're going to be talking about, there are really three areas of discussion. We're going to be talking a lot about calculations that can use with respect to glazes. And there are a few that, we can, that you use with respect to fired pottery that we'll talk about. And finally, one or two that, that refer to kiln operation. So let's talk about glazes first. 
First of all, I do want to mention that we're not going to be talking about conversion between two, two ways of writing a glazed recipe or glazed formula. There's the, there's the regular recipe that you're probably familiar with, and then there's the Seeger formula, also known as the unity molecular formula. The ways you can convert back and forth between those, we're not going to be talking about those today because those are fairly complicated calculations to do longhand, and there are plenty of good computer programs out there. I use Hyperglaze, for example, but there are plenty of good computer programs out there that will do it for you if you want to. So if you want to go from Seeger to the recipe or the recipe for the Seeger, it's, it's a lot easier to do than trying to do it longhand. So these are more simple calculations that you might want to do that there aren't usually regularly. I don't know whether there are computer programs for them available or not, but these are pretty simple. So the first thing I want to talk about is glaze recipes that are given that are not given in percent. They're given in parts, meaning some other units or in volumes. So for example, the proper form, this is the proper format for a glaze recipe. And the reason why I say proper is if recipes are written in this format, it makes it very easy to look at two different glaze recipes and compare them. And also it makes it easier to do calculations. So what I've shown here is that these are just the three major ingredients in what would be the base glaze, ABC. They could be anything. And they're written in, in percent, totaling 100%. And then any additives or modifiers to the glaze, maybe an opacifier or a colorant, are added below that. So it's like plus this ingredient 2% and plus that ingredient 4%. So that these are not an essential part of the base glaze. These are modifiers or colorants. Whereas, and the base glaze is written like that. So this is the base glaze plus the modifiers. This is the best way to write a glaze recipe. Not all of them are in this format, but this is the best way to write one. So now, suppose you get a recipe that might look more like this. I, did, I, haven't, put in, I haven't put the ingredients here, but let's say these are, these are the different ingredients, whatever they happen to be. And they just give these numbers like 30, 50, and 60, which doesn't equal 100, so they're not percent. Well, how do you convert this to percent? And it would be a good idea, again, for it makes it handier to use and you also for comparing to other recipes. So what you do is you take, you total them up, if they, and usually they're not, they don't give you the total. You'll just see that on the recipe. So you add them up and you see that they don't equal 100. So then you take each one of the individual parts and you divide it by the total. So 30 divided by 140, 50 divided by 140, and 60 divided by 140. When you divide it, you get these decimal fractions, 0.214357 and 0.429. Well, those are equivalent to percentages. So 0.214 is the same as 21.4%. So basically, and, so, and this is 35.7 and that's 42.9 and it equals 100%. So I've converted this, the parts, now to weight percent. Now it's very easy if I want to make up a 1,000 gram batch, I multiply the 1,000 grams times 21.4%, and that tells me how much to use. Now there's nothing that says I can't make up a recipe, I can't make up a glaze using these numbers. I could, I could weigh out 30 grams and 50 grams and 60 grams. It's not changing the way, but it's making it easier in terms of scaling it up and comparing it with other recipes. So this is, this is a way of converting from parts, um, to usually in weight, now suppose the recipe is given in volumes. Occasionally you'll see a recipe that will be like a cup of this and a half a cup of that. This is not a good way to, to show a glaze recipe. So how do you convert that to percent? Well, when you make up the glaze, go ahead and, and use the volumes that they say, but when you're measuring out each volume, also weigh it and record the weights. And then you'll end up with something that looks like this. They're not gonna be percents, they're just gonna be odd collection of weights for the individual volumes. 
and then you can go through this procedure and convert it to weight percent. Okay, so go ahead, and, go ahead and use the volumes, but weigh them also at the same time. And the reason why, as an aside, the reason why you don't want to have a recipe by weights or by volumes is because one, one time a material might be very fluffy and another source, for instance, of the same material might be very dense and heavy so that the same volume could weigh different amounts at different times depending on how fluffy the powder is or not. So that's a very inaccurate way of giving, of, of giving, of, of giving uh, you know, ingredients, okay? Okay, let's talk about now adjusting. I'm gonna er erase this and I'm gonna leave this up on the top and we'll talk about making some, doing some other calculations. So suppose, suppose you, want to, you want to make up a glaze and you have the recipe for the glaze, and you're looking down the list of ingredients, and you're checking your ingredients that you have, and you don't have enough of one of the ingredients. You have all the ingredients, but you don't have enough. So the question might be, well, if I use up all of this, this one ingredient, how much can I actually make, even though I don't have enough to make up the full recipe? And so how would you do it? Well, this is the way you do it. If I have, this is, an, this is, from a, this is an example. This is an early Chinese recipe translated into different ingredients for a glaze. That's whiting, EPK, and silica. And the percentages are this, 30.4 and 36, equaling 100. And so now if I wanna, if I wanna make up, if I wanted to use the, these are percents, if I wanted to make up a 1,000 gram batch, then I'd be weighing out 336 grams and 304 grams and 360 grams, right? That would be the normal procedure to make, this would total 1,000 if I wanted to make up a 1,000 gram batch. But let's say for EPK, I only have 250 grams. I don't have, well, I'll put it over here. I only have 250 grams. I don't have 304 grams. So how much can I make up if I, I say, okay, I'm willing to use up my full 250 grams. How much glaze can I make? And this is an easy way to do it. So I take, I take the amount that I have on hand, which is 250, that's how many I have, and I divide it by the actual amount that I'd like to have, or the amount needed, that's 304. And I get a number that looks like this, 0.822. So it says, I roughly have 0.822, I, have a I only have a fraction, that's the fraction. I only have a fraction of the amount that I need. And then what I can do though, is then I multiply this number by all the other numbers. So if, I take, if this is the fraction that I have, I want the same fraction of all the other ingredients. So I can take 336 and multiply it times 0.822, and I can take 360 and multiply it times 0.822, and 336 times that is 276, and 360 is 296. And so I've, multi I've, I've used the same fraction to, to sort of reduce the quantities, and then my new recipe would look like this. My new recipe would be whiting uh, 276 grams, whoops, sorry, 276, and EPK would be 250, that's the 250 I have, and then the silica would be 296. So my new total batch size would be 822 grams. 
And now if I do the percentages, if I, if I divide these out by that, I get the same percentages I had before. If I divide 276 by 822, I get that. So I've kept the same percentages, but I've, I've shrunk the size of the, the batch. And by doing this, it told me if I only have 250 of that, how much I need of the others to keep the same numbers, okay? So that's a way, that way I can, I can still make up the glaze and use it up, and I, and I use, but I use up all of that, the reduced quantity, okay? Okay, let's talk a little bit about now substituting, I'm gonna be doing a lot of writing on the board here. There are, by the way, if people are interested, we'll have a set of handouts that are available to go along with this, so you won't have to be copying all of this down. Let's talk about substituting ingredients in a glaze recipe. This is fairly common, where um, you might have, you might, the recipe might call for one particular ingredient and you don't have it, but you have something that's similar to it or useful enough that you want to substitute it. And in some cases, you can, you can substitute it directly. Well, if the material is the same type of material, let's say potash feldspar, only you have a different kind of potash feldspar than what the recipe, if the recipe calls for a specific type, in most cases, you can probably just directly substitute it, just use the new material. Now, there may be, there may be little changes in the color because of impurities or other things that you can adjust for, but in general, there is no big adjustment you have to make. The same way if you have, if the recipe specifies one type of ball clay and you have another type of ball clay, or the recipe specifies one type of kaolin and you have a different type of kaolin. In most cases, you can just directly substitute them. But what happens if the, if the replacement that you have has a different formula, meaning a different composition than the, one, than the material that you're trying to replace? Now you have to use molecular weights to calculate the amounts. And this is what we talked a little bit about when we were, in, in, in when we were talking earlier about glazes. So well, basically, let's review quickly. What are atomic and molecular weights? Well, the atomic number of an element is the number of protons and neutrons in the nucleus. And the atomic number is basically what identifies that element, okay? The atomic weight is the number of protons plus the number of neutrons in the nucleus. That's the atomic weight. And that's gonna be pretty much unique. It'll be unique for every element. And when an element forms a compound, that is el elements are combining, then we talk about the molecular weight rather than the atomic weight. That is the weight of one molecule or one unit of that compound. And the molecular weight is the weight of all the elements in the compound. And I'll give you an example. So let's say I have the, I have the element aluminum and the atomic number, the atomic number is 13 and the atomic weight is 27 because it's 13 plus the additional neutrons. And then let's say I have the element oxygen. The atomic number is eight and the atomic weight is 16. So how would I use them? Well, suppose I have, I have the compound aluminum oxide, which I'll write like this, Al2O3. That's aluminum oxide. So if I wanna know the molecular weight of aluminum oxide, I'd take, I have two aluminums. So I take the molecular weight of the atomic weight of aluminum times two and add to that the, the weight of oxygen times three. So that would be 27 times two plus 16 times three equals 102. So that's the molecular weight, that's the weight of one molecule or one unit of aluminum oxide basically by summing up the weights of, of all the atoms that are in it. 
Okay? And we'll be talking about this. We'll, in some cases, we'll be using atomic weights, and in other cases, we'll be using molecular weights. And there are tables. You do, usually don't have to calculate these. There are plenty of tables available where you can just look up the molecular weight of a compound. But this is how they're derived. Thanks for watching this video. Please like, subscribe, and share it with your friends. And consider becoming a patron of our channel. Visit www.patreon.com and search for the Potter's Roundtable. Any amount you give will support the creation of a digital library of educational videos and podcasts to support artists, potters, and educators now and into the future. If you would like more information about our membership studio, classes, events, and multimedia productions at Washington Street Studios, visit our website at www.hfclay.com. Okay, so let's look at a, an example of a simple substitution in a glaze recipe. And this is one that people might want to, you might want to do fairly often, and that is you want to substitute calcined kaolin for kaolin. And calcining, if, if you remember from our previous discussions, when you say something is calcined, it's usually a powder, and it means that it's been heated to bring about some kind of a chemical change. It hasn't, you haven't heated it enough to where it melts or it gets dense. You've just changed the chemistry a little bit by heating it up. It's kind of like baking the powder. So I want to take, I want to take kaolin and replace it with calcined kaolin. And the reason why you do this is because if a glaze recipe has a lot of, of clay in it, a lot of kaolin, it's possible that, and because clay absorbs a lot of water, then when the glaze dries, the glaze may shrink a lot and it may crack and it may also shrink enough where it starts to cause, result in crawling. So if a glaze requires a lot of clay because of the chemistry, but somehow you want to reduce this fluffiness and this water absorption, if you replace it with calcined kaolin, the calcined kaolin, remember, is really no, not clay any longer. So it doesn't absorb water. It doesn't get soft and, and, and plastic the same way that the regular clay does. So it will prevent some of those problems with the shrinkage and the drying of the glaze. So it's a very common thing to do. You're not changing the chemistry of the glaze. You're just changing the form of the kaolin so that it doesn't cause those problems. So regular kaolin looks like this. This is the, the, the formula for kaolin. So that's a molecule of aluminum oxide. And this is two molecules of silica and two molecules of water. That's the, and remember, we talk, as we talked before, that in this case, the water is actually contained in the compound. It's part of the crystal structure. It's an important part. It doesn't mean that the clay is wet. The water is actually present in it. And calcined kaolin, Calcine kaolin is this. And you're probably already guessing what it is. It's the same without the water. That's calcine kaolin. I've heated it up enough to drive off the water. This is one of the things that's happening when you're bisque firing. You're changing the kaolin to calcine kaolin. We're calling it calcine kaolin. It's no longer actually clay, but that's what we're calling it, okay? So suppose I want to replace, I want to replace the kaolin with calcine kaolin. And so what I, what I, the, this is the way I do it. I look, at the gra I look at the recipe and I say how many grams of kaolin, I'll just abbreviate it K, how many grams of kaolin in the recipe do I need? And it'll say, you know, 50 grams or whatever. And then I divide it by the molecular weight of kaolin. 
And what that gives me is the number of molecules, the number of molecules of kaolin that I need. Okay, because if, if this is how much one molecule weighs, I divide it into the, the total weight, it tells me now in terms of the number of molecules I need. Well, when I, if, so if I need this many molecules of kaolin, meaning that I need this many, of, this many of parts of aluminum and this many parts of silica, because the formulas are basically the same except for the water, I'm going to need the same number of molecules of calcine kaolin because I'm going to get the same, I'm going to get the same one for each one. I get the same one of those and two of those. So in this case, I just, all I do is I take, this is how many molecules, so I take the molecular weight, but I have to convert, I've been, I've been counting molecules, now I have to go back to weights. So I take the molecular weight of the calcined kaolin, I'll call that CQ, and divide it by the molecular weight of the kaolin. And I get, a, and this, I'll give you the numbers here, but we, we haven't talked about it. It's 222.2, that's the molecular weight of calcine, and 258.2. Kaolin is heavier because it contains the water. And if I divide it, I get 0.86. Okay? So that's what that says is that the the, the, the calcine kaolin is only 0.86 a fra fraction of what the weight of the kaolin is because it doesn't have as much water. So if I take that 0.86 and I multiply it times the weight of kaolin I need in the recipe, that tells me how much metakaolin I need. This is the fraction of the recipe value that I need. So if the recipe calls for 50 grams, I take 50 grams, multiply it times 0.86, and that gives me the new amount of calcine kaolin that I need to use, okay? If you notice also, the difference here is 14%. That's the weight, that's, that's the water. That's the amount of water, that's the weight law that clay, that's the weight that clay loses when you bisque fire it. It loses about 14% because it's losing that water. Okay? Okay. Let's do it. Let's look at another example. You're going to have a lot of little sections here where you can delete in the, in the middle here then when, <laughs> while I'm erasing the board. And I think I just pushed the, yep, I got to go to a different marker here. Okay. All right. So let's, let's do another example. I want to replace copper oxide copper oxide, the recipe, the recipe calls for copper oxide and it calls for the particular form CuO, that's the formula. And I want to replace it, I don't have any copper oxide, but I do have copper carbonate. So I have copper carbonate and one, I can write the formula for that as CuCO3, copper carbonate. So I want to replace, I want to I use my copper carbonate and replace the copper oxide. So I do the same thing. I take the, I take the, the number of grams of copper oxide in the recipe and I divide it by the molecular weight of copper oxide And that, again, now this is going to tell me how many molecules I need. And we can abbreviate molecules, we'll call it a mole. 
which is not one of those little furry brown animals that tunnels through your garden. Well, it is, but it's also basically one unit of the formula. And so it's going to tell me the number of molecules or moles of copper oxide that I need. Now, when I look at, I can also write the formula for copper carbonate like this, which means that it's a copper oxide plus a molecule of carbon dioxide, which is kind of like what we talked about with the clay, where the water goes away. Well, in this case, the carbon dioxide would go away. So in a, in, in a way, for each molecule of copper oxide, I've got the same thing present in the copper carbonate. I just have something extra. If you'd like to see a video version of this presentation, just head out to YouTube and search for Washington Street Studios. Okay, so I can do the same thing if I do the, if I do the ratio now of the molecular weight of copper carbonate. I'm going to have, let me change markers here. They were running dry. Molecular weight of copper carbonate. Use, oops. And divide that by the molecular weight of copper oxide. I get a fraction, 1.55, which says that copper carbonate is heavier than copper oxide. Well, you'd expect it to be because it has something extra in it, okay? So now if I take the 1.55 and I multiply that by the number of grams of copper oxide in the recipe, that will tell me how many grams of copper carbonate. It's the same procedure as last time, um, only, only it's a different, different material, okay? But so now, and, and before it was, a, it was a smaller fraction. In this case, it's a larger, it's a larger amount because this is heavier than that. So I take 1.55 times the weight of this that the recipe calls for, and that now gives me the weight of copper carbonate that I need. Okay? Okay. Let's do a little more complicated example now. Okay. I'm getting a signal from my partner here that we're running, we're running a little long. So this is probably going to be a multiple part discussion on math today. So let's talk about another one here. A little more complicated thinking behind it. I want to replace copper oxide. Oh, that's the bad end of the marker. I want to replace copper oxide with, which is in this particular copper oxide is CuO, I want to replace it with a fairly common mineral that's used a lot for colorants called malachite. It's a copper ore and it's, and it basically it can be used, it's a, it's a very common ancient uh, pigment for copper. And the formula for this is this. So what it says is the, the malachite is a combination of copper carbonate and copper hydroxide. So it's a little more complicated. And so again, I want to replace this with this. So how do I do it? Well, it's the same basic idea with one little, with one little twist. So again, I look at the grams of copper oxide in the recipe because I've got I've to count, sort of count molecules first, go from weights to molecules and then back. So I look at copper oxide in the recipe, and I divide it by the molecular weight of copper oxide. And again, I get moles 
of copper oxide. How many molecules of copper oxide? Now, in this case, if I'm going to substitute it with this, when I put a mole or one unit of this, I'm getting two coppers instead of just one copper. So I've got to compensate for that. So now, when I replace this with this, I'm only going to use half of, the same, half of this number because I'm getting two for every one of these. It's not one for one. So I'm only going to take the number of moles of copper oxide, and when I change it to malachite, I'm only going to use half that number. So that gives me the half of that. Now this gives me the number of moles of malachite. And the way I actually do it is, so now I take the molecular weight of malachite, and I divide it by 2, because I only want half of it. And now I divide that by the molecular weight of copper oxide to get my fraction again, and I get 1.39. So I'll take 1.39 and multiply that times the original number of grams in the recipe and that tell me how many grams of malachite. The trick here was because this didn't contain the same number of coppers, I had to add in that half. I had to divide it by two. And also if you enjoyed the presentation, please like it and subscribe to our channel and share it with your friends and other potters. This helps our videos get found. If you didn't like it, tell us why. Maybe we can do better next time. Okay. Also check out our website, www.hfclay.com. Well, we really want to thank our patrons for supporting our educational efforts. And if you'd like to help us, consider becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com and look for the Potter's Roundtable. We have five options, five different patronage levels that you could subscribe to. And we decided instead of naming them the typical gold, silver, bronze, platinum, we decided to give them clay names. So the first, the first level we have is, is what we're calling a clay patron, and that's for a dollar a month. And in, in exchange, you get recognition on our patron appreciation page in, our, in all of our videos. The second level that we have, we're calling a bisque level, which is um, $5 a month. And again, you get the recognition, plus you get a Potter's Roundtable sticker that you can put on your laptop or wherever you like, or on your forehead. Um, looks like this. Um, the third level that we have is called the earthenware level. That's $10 a month. You get all the previous benefits, plus you get a transcript of any available episode that we have every month, a transcript of the, of the, of the presentations. The, the stoneware level is the next one. That's for $20 a month. You get all the previous benefits, plus you get one of our Potter's Roundtable t-shirts that looks like this. And the final level that we have is what we're calling the porcelain patron level, which is for $50 a month. And again, you get all the previous benefits. You also get a handmade by, our, by Dennis, our, our, one of our founding members here, a handmade uh, Potter's Roundtable mug. So the next topic in this series will be the continuation of this math discussion. Thank you for visiting with us today. The Potter's Roundtable is brought to you by Washington Street Studios and our patrons. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, give us a five-star review, and tell your friends. If you want to learn more about Washington Street Studios and shared studio memberships, please visit our website at www.hfclay.com. Thank you, and we'll see you again next time on the Potter's Roundtable.